You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. I have to admit, it's, it's intimidating for, for me to be getting up here in the wake or, or the aftermath of uh, Paul Tripp and, and D.A. Carson. Because, um, I mean, you know, Paul Tripp, he's got the mustache, right? He was, uh, he was a 10th Presbyterian for all those years. Uh, he's written all these great books. And then where do you even start to talk about Carson, this, this incredible New Testament commentator? Um, I did notice yesterday when he was talking, he's got a, uh, he's got a rock star pulpit move. You know, he's pretty reserved, um, but there was a moment in the sermon that was, that was just spectacular where he knew he was about to get us. He knew he was about to punch us in the gut. And he kind of stepped back and he took his glasses off and he dropped his bomb, right? And then he was just like a moment of silence and he put his glasses on and I was just waiting for the who to start playing, right? It was <laughs> straight up David Caruso. Um, well, to set up what I want to say here, I... I, I want to preface this by saying I, my goal today is not to preach a sermon. So if you, if you get done with this and you walk out of here and you go, hey, he didn't, he didn't preach a text. That's not, that's not my primary goal this morning. Because what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the culture in which we do our ministry. I want to talk a little bit about the environment that our, our work is immersed in. Um, and to set this up, let me read this little parable. It's from, uh, from David Foster Wallace from a, uh, a commencement speech that he gave at Kenyon College a few years ago. He told this little parable. He said, uh, there are these two fish, young fish, swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? <laughs> Culture... <laughs> What Wallace gets at in this is that culture is not a matter of having something or not having something. It's the water we swim in. It's what we're immersed in all of the times. It's not a matter of do we have culture, but what kind of culture that we have. What's powerful about Wallace's little parable and what he unpacks further is the fact that culture has incredible life-shaping effects on us. And oftentimes, we're completely unaware of the way in which it's, it's shaped us. We're hopelessly and helplessly enculturated people. Throughout our lives, we've been told stories and we're telling stories. And, and different cultures tell different stories that give a shape to the world that they live in. And it, it helps them to understand who they are and what they're doing and what their life is about. The American dream is a perfect example of this. It's something you take for granted. Most of us take for granted the fact that if you get good grades in school and you work real hard in college and, uh, you know, you, you can get a good job, you can marry a good spouse, you can have a nice family, you can have a nice life in the suburbs. You take for granted that that story is true. And yet if you listen to certain segments of our, of our population, you listen to certain demographics that live in America with the rest of us, they'll say, that's not true. The system's gamed. The system's cheats. It cheats against different people. It cheats against people of different skin or of different backgrounds. We've come to expect, uh, through stories, we've come to expect that the world works in a certain way. And we repeat those stories over and over again. Today I want to talk about some of the spiritual stories that are told, that we've been told and that we've heard for most of our lives and that I think have had a profound effect on our spirituality and the spirituality of the people in our congregations with us. 
Specifically, I want to describe what uh, a philosopher named Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. Taylor's the author of a book called A Secular Age. It's this massive 800-page tome um, that really looks at sort of the history of this idea, this idea of secularism. Where did it come from? How has it shaped our culture? And he traces it back over about 500 years. He says that in the generation since the Enlightenment, Western culture has grown increasingly suspicious of any kind of, any sense of transcendence, any sense of, uh, any belief in God, any belief in spirituality in general. It's been crowded out of most of our public conversation in politics, in education, in the sciences, even so much to as, to as oftentimes be even crowded out of religion itself, where we try to find ways of doing religion that don't require transcendence, that don't require God himself. What he points to is he points to a, a previous era, which he, recalls, uh, which he calls the age of enchantment. In that time, belief in God, belief in transcendence was normal. If you grab somebody off the street and you talk to them about what they believed in their world, they would have been, uh, it would have been almost natural for them to assume that, that there was some kind of God, that there were spirits at work in the world, that they were vulnerable to things like blessings and curses. There was a sense of mystery about the way the world worked and who we are and how we fit in the midst of it. But you fast forward to now, and you grab the average guy off the street, and belief in God is highly suspect and doubtful. The ideas of blessings and curses are the kinds of things we roll our eyes at anymore. The ideas of spirits at work in the world is something that we get uncomfortable with. One of the examples that he uses is he, he talks about the transition uh, in our world uh, from living in a cosmos to living in a universe. A cosmos was an ordered, meaningful creation overseen by a loving God who makes it, sustains it, and guarantees its future. So when we looked at the universe and we looked at world history and we looked at the way everything worked, there was a sense that God had made it and it had a purpose and that there was, there was some greater meaning, there was some greater purpose. Now contrast that to the way that we've learned about the universe. The universe came from nothing. It's, it's so old that it's incomprehensible. We don't, know, we don't know where it came from or what the purpose is, but we do know from studying it that eventually it's all going to fall apart, that it's hostile, that it's out to get us. So a cosmos is a meaningful world overseen by a, a loving God that has purpose. But the universe we live in is harsh, it's hostile, it's meaningless, and we're just a bunch of inconsequential stuff that happened randomly and will one day be gone. Taylor describes this, uh, this world of disenchantment as, as being an imminent frame, and I think this is a great image. If you can imagine that, that the ceiling, that above the ceiling is the idea of transcendence, and that below us, below the floor, is the idea of, of meaningful tradition, of, of depth, of, of, of the fact that we've come from someplace that, that means something. And so anytime you try to, to step into uh, thinking about transcendence, you bump your head on this ceiling. Transcendence is kind of crowded out of the way that we think. The idea that, that history has meaning and that, that, that there's depth to who we are and to, to what the world is about is, is crowded out by this floor. We can't get past the floor. We can't get past the ceiling. So we're stuck in this, this imminent frame, this limited way of thinking where, where we don't have God to, to rely on. We don't have anything out there. So we're, we're stuck here. We're stuck in the world of imminence of one another, of, of, of things that we can taste, that we can smell, that we can touch, that we can measure under a microscope, that we can see through a telescope. And what Taylor says is that this way of thinking about the world, which has become the natural way that most Westerners think about the world, it didn't just happen. It didn't come about naturally, not even in our own lives. He says this, he says, it was a struggle and an achievement to get where we are in a secular age. And in some respects, this achievement is fragile. 
We know this because each one of us, as we grew up, has had to take on the disciplines of disenchantment. And we regularly reproach each other for our failings in this regard and accuse each other of magical thinking, of indulging in myth, of giving away to fantasy. We say that X isn't living in our century, that so-and-so has a medieval mind while someone else whom we admire, they're way ahead of their time. And, and what he's getting at is that there are these disenchantment narratives. You hear it all the time. People who grew up as people of faith and they lost their faith. And when they tell their stories, it's kind of heroic. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up in faith. I grew up a Christian in a Christian household. But as I came to study things, as I came to understand the sciences, as I came to understand the way the world really works, I realized that this was just a crutch, right? This was the opiate of the masses, as, as Marx described it. Louis C.K. gets at this. He was on Conan, and he was talking about why he wouldn't let his kids have cell phones. And he, he describes this, uh, this, this kind of experience where he's driving down the road one day, and he's listening to Bruce Springsteen, and he just starts bawling, crying. And he says this. He says, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're all alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything. You're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts to visit you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad by being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting, and they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars. <laughs> but people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. The key thing to notice there is this. Louis doesn't want his kids to have cell phones because he wants them to be strong enough to face life's emptiness, meaninglessness, and sadness. Disenchantment doesn't just affect unbelievers. Again, it's the milieu, it's the water we swim in. It's the world we've been immersed in our whole lives. And so it makes the practice of our faith difficult, complex, and troubled. Taylor says, I am never or only rarely really sure, free of all doubt, untroubled by some objection, by some experience which won't fit. We can't help looking over our shoulder from time to time, looking sideways, living our faith, also in a condition of doubt and uncertainty. Disenchantment has profound effects on the way we see and approach our faith. In a world where transcendence isn't allowed, the Bible becomes something like everything else that's meant for almost a scientific analysis. We're looking for methods, for programs, for strategies that can be successful in keeping our ministries afloat and keeping things moving forward on Sundays. And yet the Bible demands transcendence. We're told that the word of God is life and light, that the word dwells in us richly while we sing, that there's more happening when we get together than what we can see or measure or taste. To put it a little differently, secularism and disenchantment is the water we're swimming in, and we don't even know that it's happening to us. And what Taylor argues is that it's not simply a take on, is that this is all simply a take on the world. This is all just one way of framing our understanding, and it's not necessarily true. Taylor has this apologetic in the book that, that, that's kind of a soft-handed apologetic. He says, he says, look, just look at your life and be honest with yourself. Look at this way of seeing the world and be honest. Is it satisfying? Is this description of the way the world works, this, this imminent frame, this disenchanted picture of the world, is it satisfying? I want to take this discussion one, one step further, and I want to, want to explore what I'm going to call an enchanted relic. It's a story that comes to us from an age before disenchantment had taken hold of Western culture. It's an old Scottish folktale about three daughters who, who set out to make their way in the world. So I give you all 
the story of the girl and the dead man. Once upon a time, there was an old woman, and she had a leash of daughters. One day, the eldest daughter said to her mother, It's time for me to go into the world and seek my fortune. I shall bake a loaf of bread to carry with you, said the mother. When the bread came from the oven, the mother asked her daughter, Would you rather have a small piece, of my blessing, a small piece in my blessing or a large piece in my curse? I would rather have the large piece in your curse, replied the daughter. Off she went down the road, and when the night came wreathing around her, she sat at the foot of a wall to eat her bread. A ground quail and her twelve babies gathered near, and little birds of the air. Will you give us part of your bread, they asked. I won't, you ugly brutes, she replied. I haven't enough for myself. My curse on thee, said the quail, and the curse of my twelve birds, and your mother's curse, which is the worst of all. The girl rose and went on her way, and the piece of bread had not been half enough. She had not traveled far before she saw a little house, and though it seemed a long way off, soon she found herself before its door. She knocked and heard a voice cry out, Who's there? A good maid seeking a master. We need that, said the voice. And the door swung open. The girl's task was to stay awake every night and watch over a dead man, the brother of the housewife, whose corpse was restless. As her reward, she was to receive a peck of gold and a peck of silver. And while she stayed there, she was to have as many nuts as she broke, as many needles as she lost, as many thimbles as she pierced, and as much thread as she used, as many candles as she burned, a bed of green silk over her, and a bed of green silk under her, sleeping by day and watching by night. On the very first night, however, she fell asleep in her chair. The housewife came in, struck her with a magic club, killed her dead, and threw her out back on a pile of kitchen garbage. Soon thereafter, the middle daughter said to her mother, It's time for me to follow my sister and seek my fortune. Her mother baked her a loaf of bread, and she too chose the larger piece and her mother's curse. And what happened to her sister happened to her. Soon thereafter, the youngest daughter said to her mother, It's time for me to follow my sisters and seek my fortune. I had better bake a loaf of bread, said her mother. Which would you rather have, a small piece in my blessing or a large piece in my curse? I would rather, said the daughter, have the smaller piece in your blessing. And so she set off down the road, and when the night came wreathing around her, she sat at the foot of a wall to eat her bread. The ground quail and her twelve birds and the little birds of the air gathered about. Will you give us some of that, they asked. I will, you pretty creatures, if you will keep me company. She shared her bread, all of them ate their fill, and the birds clapped their wings about her till she was snug with warmth. The next morning she saw a house a long way off. And it says that the, uh, the task and the wages are repeated, so she's to watch over this dead man. She sat up at night to watch the corpse, sewing to pass the time. About midnight, the dead man sat up and screwed up a grin. If you don't lie down properly, I'll give you one good leathering with a stick, she cried. He lay down. After a while, he rose up on one elbow and screwed up a grin. A third time, he sat and screwed up a grin. When, she rose, when he rose the third time, she walloped him with the stick. The stick stuck to the dead man, and her hand stuck to the stick, and off they went. He dragged her through the woods, and it was high for him, it was low for her, and when it was low for him, it was high for her. The nuts knocked at their eyes, and the wild plums beat at their ears, until they both got through the wood. Then they returned home. The girl was given the peck of gold, the peck of silver, and the vessel of cordial. She found her two daughters and rubbed them with the cordial and brought them back to life. And they left me sitting here, and if they were well, tis well, and if they were not, let them be." Now, somewhere in this room right now, Matt Boswell's skin is crawling, going, what is Cosper doing up there? <laughs> but stick with me. I do think this is actually worth our time. And it's perhaps important at the outset to say this. I could have probably read any one of a thousand folk tales. This is an old Scottish folk tale. It was first uh, written down in the 1800s. It's probably much, much, much older than that. 
The point is not to exegete this folktale because this is true, though in many ways I think it is, but to hear this folktale as a witness to another way of seeing the world. Lewis Hyde writes about this story in his book, The Gift, and the, the, the point of the book, The Gift, is, is it's about the creative process, and it's a book I can't recommend highly enough to those of you who are songwriters and artists. Uh, it's an incredible book. And Hyde argues that creative work is always meant to function in the world as a gift. And the moment you try to turn it into a commodity, the moment you take a gift and you say, how can I, what, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this for myself? How can I get wealthy off of this? How can I maximize my own gain from this? You destroy something about the gift. In a way, Hyde is arguing for an understanding of the world that's enchanted, that there's more to the world, that there's more to the way the world works than what we can see. Hyde argues that rea the reality at the work in this folktale, and he impacts it in the way that these gifts function. So to get a look at that, let's look at the gifts in the story. The first gift is, is the gift of the bread from the mother to the daughters. And what the mother is making ex explicit is what's implicit in every gift. She says that if you want a small piece of this bread and my blessing, or a large piece and my curse. She's saying, do you really want the bread, or do you really want the gift? Do you really want me? So imagine it's my birthday, right? And imagine like 10 of my friends come over to my house and they all bring me gifts and they're, they're kind of lavish, right? So we have a big party and at the end of the night, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to my friend and he's like, how was your birthday? And I was like, it was great. It was a great birthday party. And, and he says, what do you think of your gifts? And I said, oh, it's, it's great. It's really generous, you know? I mean, looking at them, it seems like they're worth probably 450 bucks on eBay. <laughs> what, what have I done there? I've destroyed something. In fact, if people find out, they'll be really offended. You, you took my gift and you just sold it on eBay? See, what Hyde is arguing is that this is, this is true of all gifts. There's something more going on when we give a gift than what we can simply see and, and measure and commodify. And if you take a gift and you turn it into a commodity and go, okay, what's in, in it for me? I'm going to try to get more out of this. Then you've destroyed something. And that's what the mother is making explicit here. She's saying, do you, do you really value the bread or do you value me? And the older daughters make a decision that is extremely pragmatic. It's the decision that I, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, that if we were in their shoes, we'd be tempted to make the same decision. I'm setting out into the world and you're offering me a, a large piece and a curse, which I don't really think I'm probably vulnerable to, or a small piece and a blessing. So they take the small piece, they take the large piece and the curse. The younger daughter responds with sensitivity to the spiritual consequences of her relationships. She believes she's vulnerable. She says, I'd rather have you than the bread. There's more to life than bread. Or as someone else once put it, there's, man does not live on bread alone. The second gift that happens in the stories is when the daughters encounter the, the birds. The older daughters are still being pragmatic. They're being reasonable. They're being responsible. They're on their way in the world. They've got to take care of what they've been given. And they just don't have enough to share. What's a curse, they say. I'm not vulnerable. The younger daughter, though, is sensitive to these consequences. She believes she is vulnerable. And as a consequence, the older daughters are cursed again, they're denied rest, and they die because they can't continue to do their work. Again, the, daughters, the, the older daughters don't sleep. They just head on down the road. They show up at this house. They try to stay up all night. They're still hungry. They're tired. They fall asleep, and the crazy old lady bats them over the head and throws them in the garbage. The younger daughter, though, she sees her world as a world of abundance. 
She sees a world where it is better to give than receive. So when these birds come along, she shares with them, and these birds comfort her, and she sleeps, and she's able to do the task that's assigned to her because she understands the difference between a gift and a commodity. A gift is something that's meant to be shared. It's meant to be extended on. It's meant to bless. And so rather than hoarding, rather than measuring, rather than accounting for what she's been given, she shares it. She extends it. Which brings us to the third and the fourth gifts in the story. After she accomplishes the task, she's paid her, the wages she was promised, which was the gold and the silver, but she's given yet another gift, the cordial. And you notice that that wasn't the wage. She wasn't promised the cordial, the magic, the magic potion. It was a gift. This, like the bread, she continues to extend to others. She spends the cordial on her sisters, and she raises them back to life. And what Hyde is arguing is that this is actually the way the world works that it's counterintuitive to our practical, pragmatic, imminent way of thinking about the world. I think if we were honest with ourselves, if we told this tale today, if we wrote this story now, it would be the exact opposite. The older daughters would take less bread and wanting the blessing, they'd set off down the road and they'd die of starvation by the wall. Or they'd share, yeah, they'd share their bread and they'd die in the wilderness. The younger daughter would take more bread than the curse. She'd probably kill and roast the pigeon. She'd take the job. She'd roll her eyes, reading Twitter all night on her phone, and not worrying about the dead guy at all. The moral would be, don't be fooled by superstitions. Don't be fooled by people who try to, 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 to waylay you with spiritual hocus-pocus. The truth is that the world of the girl and the dead man is profoundly different than our own. And let's also not lose sight of the fact that the world of the girl and the dead man is more like the world of the Bible than our current cultural milieu. Remember that it was Paul who, quoting Jesus, said it's more blessed to give than receive. That Jesus, in John 4, as we heard yesterday, said if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water, something more, something more profound than this water that's there. You don't, have, you don't have anything to draw up water with, said the Samaritan woman. How can you, how can you give me this living water? There's more than we can see. Another example is the widow's might. While Jesus was in the temple, Luke 21, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for she has given a tiny, they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. But somehow that was more. Somehow the little she gave was more. Again, the world does not work the way we think the world works. Another example, a final example, Exodus 20, where God sends manna to feed Israel in the wilderness. And one could say a lot about that passage. It's an overt demonstration about how the nature of God's provision is a gift and not an exchange. No matter how much people gathered, none had any left over and none lacked for what they needed. They had just enough. If anyone actually tried to keep extra, to turn what was a gift into a commodity to be accumulated and perhaps exchanged, it rotted and became infested with worms. Lewis Hyde talks about how turning a gift into a commodity destroys the nature of the gift and the bond that it forms. And in Exodus 20, that's illustrated literally. If you take the gift and you try to turn it into something more, it, it destroys it. Again, each of these stories rubs up against the way that we're tuned in to seeing the world. We don't think that it's better to give than receive. We don't generally think of the world as a place of abundance. We don't expect God's provision to be enough for any of us. But the scriptures testify that there's more to the world than what can be seen, tasted, measured, examined under a microscope. 
So what does all this have to do with, with worship and with being worship leaders? Well, I think the, the task before us this weekend is to think about the life and labor of the worship leader and to return to that wall, the Wallace quote that I opened up with. The water we swim in is a world that's been disenchanted. It's made us prone to disbelief, prone to doubt, prone to pragmatism. And as I said already, I believe that the world of the girl and the dead man is probably more true to reality than the disenchanted narratives that we've heard, repeated, embodied, practiced, believed at the deepest level of our hearts for most of our lives. As a result, I think we have a disenchanted approach to our faith. We practice our faith within an imminent frame. We, We approach it like scientists. We're looking for formulas and recipes that get us the results we want. Pastors are guilty of it too. Many of you are here this weekend, you're looking for, for programs, for solutions. What's a strategy that I can, that I can do things better? What, what do I have to do? How do I have to put the pieces together so that my church grows, so that my church thrives? We measure our success based on, uh, based on these, these sort of concrete measurables, the metrics, right? Church metrics. You, if, if you've been around for a while, you've heard that all the time. A lot of times we practice our faith in a way that that Dallas Willard describes as as biblical deism. God wound up the world like a clock. He set it spinning, and he gave us the Bible, and then he disappeared. Here's the instruction manual. I'll see you guys when I return. You're on your own. Figure it out. Figure out how to make it work, to make your world work. If you don't think you live in a disenchanted world, if you don't think that it's shaped you, then then just ask yourself a couple of questions and, and, and be honest. How do you respond when you hear a story about somebody who's been miraculously healed? Is it your first impulse to believe or to doubt? Do you feel awkward and uncomfortable when conversations turn spiritual and public? How about spiritual warfare, demon possession, charismatic gifts? I think we all need to be aware that disenchantment colors the way we think about our faith. Whether we're talking about a worship service or our personal devotions, at the end of the day, most of us don't expect for God's spirit to actually show up. We think we're on our own. And if we're on our own, we need strategies and plans for building our congregations. We need to learn how, do we, how to manipulate our congregations. I think often of a, of a, a great episode of The Simpsons where there's, there's some sort of car accident and Bart Simpson somehow ends up thrown into a tent revival. And he comes back home from after experiencing this tent revival and he's like, he's like you guys, church doesn't have to be boring. There can be lights and smoke and Tybo. <laughs> I notice we do have the lights and the smoke this week, and I'm hoping that uh, before too long, Boswell will do some Tybo for us. <laughs> but here's the thing. If we're on our own, we don't need any spiritual vitality. We don't need to be people of depth. If we're on our own, we just need a good plan. We need a good plan that works, that makes people want to come back next week, that keeps things going. We don't need a life of prayer because there's too much work to do. Why waste all that time and effort speaking to the sky, speaking to the ceiling that doesn't seem to answer back? We don't need, if we're on our own, we don't need wisdom from those who've gone before us, both in our congregations and our church history, because tradition doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't carry any weight, except to the degree that it meets the goals of gathering numbers and manipulating emotions. I think if we're honest with ourselves as well, most of us would admit that we're dissatisfied with, the, with our spiritual lives. We struggle to pray. We struggle to, to study and meditate on God's word. What if we're resistant to these things, not simply because they're, they're hard, though I don't want to deny that they're hard, 
but because of the cultural water that we've been swimming in our entire lives. I think most of us, and certainly most of our congregation members, are like the older daughters in the stories. They're unaware or unconvinced of their spiritual vulnerability. Give me more bread and the curse. I just need the bread. Many of us, and certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't want to stretch the metaphor too far here because, again, it's just a folktale. But what is the bread and what is the curse? And, and if you want a more directly biblical metaphor, let's think of the story of Esau, who comes running into the tent after a day hunting, and he gives him the opportunity to have soup and betray his birthright or to have no soup and to keep his birthright. And he says, I just need the, I just need the soup. I just need the soup. So ask yourself, what's the, what's the bread? What's the soup? Would we rather have an effective parenting technique or a relationship with God himself? Would we rather have a happy, easy marriage or a God who meets us in the midst of struggling, failing marriages? Would we rather have money, a bigger house, a better job, a bigger platform, a more successful ministry, or a God who meets us in poverty and failure? Many of us say, you know what, I just want bread. I want the bread and the curse. I want my pain ended. I'm not convinced that God's actually going to show up. And as, as scary and strange as that idea might be, I think we also have to admit that it's scary and strange to think that, that what if we're not on our own? What if God does show up? What if God isn't some disinterested deity out there but is, is living and active and present in our lives in ways that we can and can't see? What if, as Paul said, we live, move, and have our being in him? What if, as Dr. Carson testified yesterday, that worship isn't something we do in a specific time and place on a mountain, but something that happens in spirit and truth throughout all of our lives? What if it's really true that God's word dwells in us richly when we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts? What if that's really true? What if we're vulnerable to evil, to darkness, to principalities and powers, to demons and devils who want to kill, steal, and destroy every bit of good in the world around us? Because that's the truth. We don't live in a world of imminence. We don't live in a world where simply what we can see and measure is all that there is. We live in a world that, as Karl Barth once described, is the strange world of the Bible. Spirits, miracles, demons, donkeys that talk, dead men that get up and walk. That's the real world. And that's the world to which we testify every time we gather, we sing, we break bread, we pour wine, and we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So what do we do? How do we leave a world of disenchantment? Well, I think we need two things here. I think we need discipline. And I think we need awakenings. When it comes to discipline, I think that there's an extent to which the following statement's true. That we disciplined ourselves into this situation and we'll discipline our way out of it. Remember the Taylor quote from earlier where he talked about, we, we got here because we told stories. We told narratives of disenchantment. We told narratives of, of don't, don't get caught up in magical thinking. Don't get, don't get too superstitious. Don't get too, uh, don't get too heavenly minded to be earthly good. The disciplines and disenchantment are regular practices, stories, and habits that oriented our, ourselves to a world of imminence. We learned to expect a world without God or transcendence. And likewise, we need to learn and practice our way out of it. 
And I think Dallas Willard's right when he says uh, that, that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Oftentimes when we talk about spiritual disciplines, people get nervous and think, think, well, isn't that something that God's supposed to do? Isn't he supposed to transform my mind? Absolutely. You can't transform your mind. But you can practice putting yourself in a place where the Holy Spirit can work and transform you. Cultivating regular practices that shape our daily life is a way of inhabiting the world differently. By deliberately replacing our disciplines and habits of disenchantment with spiritual disciplines, we learn to inhabit the world in a new way, gaining an awareness of God's presence and his advancing kingdom. We discover that disenchantment didn't reveal a soulless, godless world, but it merely obscured the spiritual vitality of the world we live in every day. We discover that we truly live, move, and have our being in God. Matthew Milliner, writing about some of the transitions between a, a secular age and a, and a pre-secular age, he said that he said, habit was once understood as cinderesis, benevolent patterns that imbue intelligence and free the mind for com- contemplation. In secularism, they become mindless repetition. We're afraid to do the same things over and over again because we think they're not meaningful. But in another age, repetition was seen as a way of inhabiting a world. Your habits are a way that you inhabit something. And so repetition is a good thing. It frames the mind. It frames the heart. It prepares us to live in a different world. It's a mistake to think that repetition itself is empty or vain. We need to ask if habit, meaningful habit that is, might not be necessary for the meaningful spontaneity in all of life's spirituality to live in a transcendent world. Liturgy is repetitious. Worship is repetitious. And that can be a good thing. It's a habit that serves as a way of inhabiting God's kingdom. Worship and the spiritual disciplines are habits that we practice in order to inhabit the world in a new way. And here's the good news, folks. We're not alone in that task. We're not alone in trying to help wake people up to a world that's more wonderful and more mysterious than we ever thought. Because worship is a way of experiencing the world as enchanted. We don't just tell a better story. We experience it. Through music, liturgy, word, spirit, bread, and wine. And God promises when we do these things, he shows up. He shows up. He's showing up already, whether we're aware of it or not. As we're trying to go about our pragmatic business, God's at work. He's at work in people's hearts. The temptation that exists for worship leaders is to attempt to manipulate that process. To try to find ways to create an emotional experience that tugs at the heartstrings for a couple of hours. And at the end, when everybody is emotionally moved and stirred, we say, look what God did. Look what God did through, through this massive production. Through, as Bart said, through the smoke and the lights and the tybo. My challenge to you is don't settle for imminence. Don't settle for what only imminence can do. Don't settle for for bread. Seek the Lord. Which brings me to the second point, that the discipline isn't enough, that good planning isn't enough. At the end of the day, we need a miracle. We need to move from death to life. We need the Holy Spirit again and again to open our eyes to what's true and what's real in the world. And John Whitfleet wrote that the Spirit's presence is always a gift. It can't be engineered. It can never be engineered or produced. When we fall into these temptations, we alternate between quenching the Spirit and grieving the Spirit. So the only thing I know to do to move towards awakening is to try and call attention to the things that God himself gets excited about. And when we look at the scriptures, we see that what God gets excited about is exalting himself in the Trinity. 
The Father glorifies the Son in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and John 5, 23. The Son glorifies the Father in John 12 and, and in Luke 10. And the Spirit wants to glorify the Father and the Son. I love the way J.I. Packer talks about this uh, in one of his books, he writes, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, he shall glorify me, seeing the building floodlit as I turned the corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. Talking about Jesus saying that the spirit would glorify him. He says, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. In fact, you're not supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not have been seen for the darkness, to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is the floodlight shining on the Savior. Think of it this way. It's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is always, look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him and have life, get to know him and taste the joy and the gift of peace. If you want to break through a life of disenchantment, you don't need a better strategy, you don't need a better band, you don't need better skills, better gifts, a better voice, a better sound system, a better platform or a bigger building. You need way, way more than that. You need a miracle. You need an awakening. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Larry Hurtado points out that in the religious climate of its day, early Christian practice was extraordinary in its word-centeredness. The religious practices of pagan and Jewish religions were filled with ceremony, with rituals, with specially ordained feasts and celebrations. Christian worship and the Jewish synagogue practices they involved from, though, were covenant renewal practices which were focused on the action of God rather than the actions of priests and, and worshipers. There was no pageantry. There was no, there was no color. There was no, <laughs> there was no pyrotechnics. It was telling the story again and again and again. In the synagogue, it was telling the story of the Exodus, that the lamb saved their lives and that God rescued them from slavery. And that evolved in Christianity to telling the story over and over again. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The lesson for us isn't that we need to make our skills with the word more spectacular and all of these, than all of these alternatives. It's simply that the power isn't in our practices. It's in the word. It's in the story. It's in remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. We need more than skill. We need more than bread. We need a miracle. We need the spirit of God to open our eyes so that we can see through the word of God the glory of the Son of God. And I believe, uh, I believe at the end of the day, that's kind of a moment that it presents a moment kind of like that moment in the Matrix when, uh, when, when, when Neo opens his eyes for the first time and Morpheus says, welcome to the real world. This is the real world. It's, it's much more mysterious and scary than we ever dreamed it was most of our lives. And yet God meets us in the midst of it. So what can we do? Woody Allen said 88% of success is just showing up. And I think that's true for us in worship. We keep telling the same stories. We keep telling the same stories week in and week out. We keep shining the light on the things that God gets excited about, on the glory of his son, and we trust that he will continue to do all the heavy lifting. Let's pray.
Father, we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your spirit. Because, Lord, we want to see. We want to see in a world where we are so often blinded. We want to see your, your son, and we want to know that he's at work. Lord, you have loved us lavishly. You have loved us graciously. And Lord, in our blindness, you, you come to us. And you transform us, Lord. And, it, and Lord, we're so impatient. We want it to happen overnight. We want, we want transformation to happen in our own hearts instantly, in our congregations instantly. And we're so tempted to look for techniques and ways to, to manipulate and to make things happen. And yet, Lord, you're... The tools you've given us and the ways that you've invited us to love and to serve your people are often so much simpler than all of that. Word and song and bread and wine. Lord, may we trust that you know what you're doing and that you are at work. May we have confidence in the things you've called us to do rather than in the ways, that, that, the ways and the methods and the programs and the pragmatism that, that works. We trust in you, Lord. So show up. May we see your face. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.